You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll get to those stories in a moment, but first some new details in a targeted shooting that put the public at great risk and renews fears of a gang war. It happened around 6.30 last night at a Burnaby gas station. The 28-year-old victim later died in hospital. Grace Key is live with more on what we're learning about the man and what investigators say they need from the public. Grace. Yeah, certainly investigators have been canvassing the area where the shooting took place. And though this is still very early on in the case, they are saying that significant progress has been made. It's the latest murder in the Lower Mainland's ongoing gang conflict. A shooting at a busy Burnaby gas station has left one man dead. Investigators have identified the victim as 28-year-old Julian Johnson. He was known to police and it's believed to be a targeted shooting. It was a brazen shooting. It happened in a public place around dinner time, Sunday evening, 6.30. And we are so very fortunate. We are so very thankful that nobody else was hurt. It happened at 6.30 Sunday evening at the Chevron gas station at Canada Way in Willingdon. Johnson was making a purchase when he was gunned down. He was rushed to hospital but didn't survive. The suspect vehicle, a black Nissan Rogue, was seen heading east on Highway 1. Can we God. get our hose? That same vehicle is believed to have been torched about three hours later in Langley on 206 A Street and 73 B Avenue. The flames quickly spread to a nearby tree, sending neighbors scrambling to put it out. The one tree caught on fire. We uh, put it out before the fire department uh, showed up. Um, but the car was uh, exploding pretty good with the, uh, I guess it was a hybrid or something, because there's uh, lots of sparks coming off it, so we stayed away. We did see a white vehicle parked out front here that took off right before the explosion, um, but we couldn't get a good look at it because of the trees. Surprisingly for neighbours, this is the second time a vehicle has been torched on this dark, dead-end street. They've now put up cameras and lights in the area. Uh, last time was on Thanksgiving Day, there was another vehicle that was left here and burnt out as well. Um, same idea. Police are now canvassing the areas in Burnaby and Langley for any witnesses or surveillance video. It is still early on in the investigation, um, but I'm pleased to say that things are moving very quickly in the investigation. Um, there is significant progress being made. So police are now asking for drivers for any dash cam video from last night. So if you were in that Highway 1 area uh, near Burnaby, just between the hours of 6.30 and 7 o'clock last night, you're asked to contact police. And if you were in the Langley area, that's between 206A Street and 73B Avenue between the hours of 9.15 and 10 p.m., you're also asked to call police. All right, thanks for that, Grace Key, in Burnaby for us. The Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit of B.C., or CFSEU as it's known, has intercepted one of the largest illegal drug seizures in its history. Forty kilos of suspected heroin and more than 10 kilograms of imitation Percocet, all believed to be laced with fentanyl, have been kept off the streets. The seizures followed six search warrants executed on the Lower Mainland. Total cash value of the drugs estimated at $6.5 million. What we've been able to do, at the very least, is take approximately 19 million doses of potentially lethal fentanyl off our streets. That's about half the population of Canada. 
Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou's extradition hearing began in Vancouver today. Meng was arrested at YVR in 2018 at the request of the United States, which is seeking her extradition on fraud charges. Supporters and throngs of media were in attendance, as well as the wife of one of two Canadians who've been detained in China. Aaron MacArthur has more on day one and when we might see a resolution. Another day in the spotlight for Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. She calmly strolled out of her multi-million dollar home, escorted by her multi-million dollar security detail, to arrive at court to face allegations she defrauded banks out of multi-millions of dollars. Outside the court, protesters, media from around the world, and also attending the wife of Michael Kovrig, one of two Canadians being held by the Chinese government. Monday starts what's known as double criminality. Madam Justice Heather Holmes being asked to rule on whether Mung's alleged crimes in the U.S. would be crimes in Canada. Crown's submission is that bank fraud alone is enough to move the hearing forward. But defense is arguing no, saying any fraud that was committed was only committed through the lens of Iranian sanctions. And Canada no longer imposes sanctions on Iran. Mung's defense team says this is a straightforward process. Lawyer Richard Peck today asking the court rhetorically, if the U.S. hadn't imposed sanctions on Iran, would we be in court today? His answer, an emphatic no. Lawyers watching the proceedings from outside say they make a compelling argument. The defense today is setting the context. If there's not a crime in Canada, Double criminality says she goes free. Even if the defense is successful, the extradition hearing could take years to see Meng freed. Too long for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor languishing in Chinese jail cells. Scholars who study China say the way out of this political impasse remains diplomacy. Seen from China, from the average Chinese person, this looks like a bit of a plot to arrest a very, very important executive uh, on issues that have to do with foreign policy. The double criminality hearing will last until the end of the week. If there is enough evidence to prove her actions would be criminal in Canada, the next phase of extradition is in the fall. Wedged in between is the beginning of a trial where Meng Wanzhou alleges Canadian officials violated her civil rights. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. B.C. ferries were disrupted today by a blockade supporting the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, which opposes the coastal gasoline pipeline project in northern B.C., the protest blocked access to Swartz Bay Terminal on Vancouver Island this morning, causing delays of several morning sailings. Global's Brad McLeod has more on the motive and the fallout. Commuters backed up for kilometers trying to catch the 7 a.m. sailing to Sawasan. That didn't happen because protesters prevented entry into the terminal. Probably get there couple hours late and uh, all my patients have to be rescheduled. I'm trying to go to work in Abbotsford, so um, definitely delayed my commute a bit. UVic student Colin Sutherland-Wilson was part of the blockade. Bottom line, we want Premier Horgan to honour the request to the Wet'suwet'en Hereditary Chiefs to meet them person to person, leader to leader. Dozens of protesters blocked the Swartz Bay Ferry Terminal by road and by sea on kayaks. The group made up of students, environmentalists, and international groups like Extinction Rebellion, an organization which touts civil disobedience as a way to halt mass extinction. Somebody's right of free speech shouldn't infringe on other people's right of free travel. you got to appreciate it that they're, they have a cause. If they're going to protest, 
protest on the side of the road. Don't slow people down. Uh, the 7 a.m. sailing from Swartz Bay to Tawasson didn't depart until about 9.30. The group disbanded by 9 a.m. But why BC Ferries? Because they're switching some ferries over to LNG. And it's a natural gas pipeline at the centre of the Wet'suwet'en situation in northern British Columbia. BC Ferries has several vessels that operate on liquefied natural gas. But the protests have not deterred the corporation. Natural gas ferries are still in our future. And what can we expect from protesters? We're not, we won't be able to just sit down. Sutherland Wilson is a member of a band just north of Wet'suwet'en. He says his heart is with his neighbours while he finishes his two degrees at UVic. If the Premier still refuses to meet with hereditary chiefs, that's, you know, going to prompt more action, certainly. Brad McLeod, Global News, Victoria. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now live from Victoria. Keith, if you read between the you don't really even have to read between the lines. It's pretty obvious that we could see more protests. The premier yeah. asked about civil disobedience today. What's his take on it? Yeah, Premier John Horgan taking a very strong stance here. We caught up with him in Quenelle. He's on a, continuing on his northern interior tour, tour of the province. Uh, last week he said the protesters have to follow the rule of law. And uh, today, taking another uh, forceful line, pointing out that this project has a lot of support from First Nations who view this project as a way of escaping grinding poverty. Here's John Horgan listing some of those First Nations he says these protesters should pay attention to. Uh, I would suggest that those uh, in southern British Columbia who choose to stand up for the Wet'suwet'en people should talk to the Heisla, they should talk to the Kitsum-Kalem, they should talk to the West Moberly and dozens of other Indigenous communities that are anxious to see prosperity come to their communities for the first time in a long time. Now, late today, just a few moments ago, the Premier's office released this letter from John Horgan to three of the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en, saying that he's not going to meet with them, but he's going to dispatch his Indigenous Relations Minister, Scott Fraser, to Smithers on Wednesday for a sit-down with hereditary chiefs, pointing out his government has no authority to alter the injunction or to direct the RCMP here. Obviously, this dispute is going to continue for some time. Not sure a meeting on Wednesday is going to resolve this, though. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. All right. Well, for the first time tonight, we are hearing from the 12-year-old Indigenous girl who, along with her grandfather, was handcuffed while trying to open an account at the Bank of Montreal recently. While both Vancouver police and the bank have apologized for the incident, Rumina Dea explains why the pair feel it's not good enough and what a resolution might look like. What, what was going well, through I, your I mind? Need, I need yeah, a minute. Yeah, yeah, of course. Take a moment. The humiliating experience still raw for Maxwell Johnson. The Bank of Montreal's apology too late. I told her, I said, there's nothing you guys can do. I said, the damage is already done. I said, my, grand, my granddaughter's going to be traumatized now. Johnson, a loyal customer for seven years, took his 12-year-old granddaughter, Tori, to the BMO branch on Burrard to open an account December 20th. But someone from the branch suspected fraud. So they called 911 to report a discrepancy with Johnson's status card. With no warning, Johnson and his granddaughter were arrested and handcuffed by Vancouver police. How long were you in handcuffs for? 15 to 20 minutes. 15 to 20 minutes? Yeah. Out on the street? Was that scary for you? What's going through your mind when you're standing there in handcuffs on the street? I don't know. I was worried about my papa and his. Senior granddaughter get taken out of there in handcuffs. 
I don't think any grandfather or parent would like to see that. It certainly is racial profiling. It's something that our people go through on, on a daily basis. Um, some are more subtle, and this is extreme. Our mistake was to make that phone call. In an interview with Global News last week, BMO denied racism. When we just looked at this, we cannot characterize this in the way that you are characterizing the situation. Vancouver police not commenting any further on this case because the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner has ordered an investigation, which is being conducted by Delta Police. The incident on the radar for Vancouver's police board, which meets Thursday. Could have been done different. Could have been honest with us instead of calling the cops. Johnson considering all options, including legal action. Romina Dea, Global News. The BC SPCA seized 20 animals from a Langley property yesterday after receiving a report that the animals were in distress. Linda Aylesworth has more on the allegations and why officers are very familiar with this home. With so many RCMP and BCSPCA vehicles on scene, it would have been clear to anyone driving by this Langley home on Sunday that something bad was going down. The concern that the BCSPCA had received uh, included allegations that um, the dogs were being kept in crates up to 16 to 18 hours a day. According to the SPCA, what they found inside lived up to the tip they had received. We ended up finding uh, a number of animals that met the definition of distress under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. 20 animals were seized, among them nine dogs and three cats. But this isn't the first time the home of Sandra Simmons has had such a visit. In 2017, 12 dogs and four cats were seized. And the year before that, in 2016, 88 animals were taken and eventually put up for adoption. It was tragic in that particular circumstance because of, again, there were conditions um, in which they were living in, confined to crates for extended periods of time. In a 2016 interview, Simmons, who we were unable to reach today, insisted she rescues animals. We're not a hoarder and we're not abusers and we're not crazy. We are passionate. If you are going to be rescuing an animal, the assumption is that you are uh, taking that animal from bad circumstances and improving upon those circumstances. And that was not happening. The SPCA does not have the power to prevent people from owning animals, but the Supreme Court of BC does, which is why they plan to eventually go to court. We want to see animals um, thrive and not to see this repeated situation, which they're suffering needlessly. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Right now, though, as steps are taken to put out the so-called ICBC dumpster fire, tonight the province is announcing another new measure designed to help it save some money. Repair shops will now be ranked and listed on ICBC's website. Richard Zussman has more on how it'll work and the benefit for both drivers and repair shops. You want to find out the best hotel? There's an online ranking for that. How about the best restaurant? Those are ranked too. Now the BC government is set to do the same for ICBC-approved auto body shops. There are a couple different metrics that will be used in the evaluations. Uh, one is certainly uh, 
is the firm doing this in a cost-efficient manner? Are they repairing a windshield instead of replacing it when they can? The ranking system won't come into effect just yet, as ICBC gathers data. It's part of the province's redesign of the collision and glass repair programs. Uh, we hope that you're able to access uh, a firm that will do the collision repair in a very short period of time, cost-effectively, and uh, to your satisfaction. The changes include random reviews to help reduce shops charging unfair amounts for repairs. In order for body shops to qualify for the rankings, it must update equipment and training requirements. Modern vehicles have extremely precise tolerances. It's a simple fact that you have to have the equipment to properly repair the vehicle. But the changes themselves come with pretty substantial costs, some in the range of more than $100,000. And that's putting the strain on auto body shops like this. There's going to be fewer small mom and dad shops around in Victoria. Lima says it's just another financial blow to family-run businesses like his struggling to survive. I think these are good changes that impact the economy because of developing costs in, in vehicles and the, uh, the changes of uh, new complex vehicles. But where do you pull the money out to pay for all this? I mean, I have no idea. While the changes may make it easier for customers to pick an auto body shop to use, Lima says it will mean there will be far less options for people to choose from, especially if he's forced to close these doors. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. City staff in Vancouver have narrowed the choices for the Granville Bridge redesign to one. They're recommending the West Side Plus design option. That includes wide, accessible sidewalks on both sides of the main span of the bridge and a two-way bike lane on the west side. They're now seeking public input one final time before presenting the proposed design to council for a decision. This will help us accommodate our population growth. We have 35,000 people moving to, this, to the region every year. And these people are traveling around. And for us to be able to have a road network that isn't congested and for us to meet our climate emergency targets, uh, we really need to create the facilities for people to be able to walk and bike. Another dispute over parking in downtown Vancouver has landed on our Consumer Matters desk. That's right. Andrew has the story of a man who thought he did everything right, but was surprised to still get a fine. Eh? <laughs> he was very surprised. He thought he could depend on the technology. Right. <laughs> Thanks for that, Chris. Sure. In park customer Jay Rogers had paid for his visitor parking when the parking machine offered him a text message feature to remind him when his spot was about to expire. He entered his phone number, but he never got alerted. What's worse, he was slapped with a parking violation. He eventually contacted Consumer Matters to see if we could help. This is the last thing you want to discover when you return to your vehicle, a parking violation notice. What business are they in? Are they in the business of, of renting a parking spot or are they in the business of ticketing people and collecting large fines? Jay Rogers is referring to Impark. The parking provider put a dent in his festivities when he says he paid for visitor parking on December 24th of last year while visiting family in downtown Vancouver. When I bought the parking ticket, they'd had a new feature. At the very end of the transaction, it offered me an opportunity to enter my mobile number and said that it, they would text me when my parking was about to expire and that I could actually pay by text, which I thought, great. His enthusiasm diminished when Jay says he never received a text message alerting him his parking was about to expire. Clearly, I was late by about an hour, but uh, I received no text, and, uh, but I did receive a violation from Mim Park. 
Jay was fined close to $80. He contacted Impark to dispute the ticket, explaining how the text warning expiry feature failed him. Told her about the, uh, about the text feature and she denied adamantly that that feature existed in this lot. He says he requested to speak to a manager, even sent a screenshot of the parking option. But Jay says he never got a response. After phoning back numerous times, he says he finally connected with an in-park manager. He said that my receipt had a time on it and it was my responsibility to, to update my parking. And I, I told him that, you know, in good faith, when you offer a service, you're supposed to provide the service. Jay says he had no problem paying the upgrade for the hour, but he wasn't going to pay the fine. You almost have to have the patience of a saint to deal with them because they, they'll argue with you on the phone, they'll put you on hold for extended periods of time. That's when he turned to Consumer Matters for help. We reached out to Impark on Jay's behalf. He was contacted by the parking provider the next day telling him the ticket had been cancelled. assumed that it was just a, a defect in the technology and that, that I didn't receive the text message and that they were going to basically, you know, squash the ticket. It just leads me to believe that they would have just, you know, ignored my pleas had it not been for Consumer Matters. From now on, Jay says he won't depend on such technology, instead protecting himself in the future by setting his personal alarm. We asked in Park what happened in Jay's case and if this type of glitch is still happening at this machine and others around the city, but no one from the company got back to us. Jay Rogers was told by the parking provider they are investigating the situation. They also apologized to him and fully acknowledged he was not at fault. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can reach me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Right. Thank you, Ann. Well, another warning tonight about those baby monitors that provide audio and video for parents. A Calgary mother says she was shocked when she turned on her monitor and saw someone else's baby. Born 15 weeks early, little Declan DeLuca needs a little extra care. For the first 101 days, um, he didn't breathe on his own. When I put him down to nap, I can watch it on my phone. His mom, Carmen, used to rely on a Motorola video baby monitor to watch over him when she couldn't, until something strange happened. He was lying beside me sleeping, and then I could hear a baby crying, and then I saw the monitor light up, and then I looked at it, and then I was just really spooked. DeLuca usually sees Declan on the monitor but says this time she saw a different baby. Adding to the strangeness of the situation, she says it only happens when the camera in Declan's room is off and she's looking at the handheld unit in her bedroom. On the phone app, it works as it should. Binetone, the parent company that owns the license for Motorola Baby, says while it takes customer personal data security extremely seriously, it also believes the allegations are extremely unlikely and impossible. It said the parent unit has an essentially unique electronic identifier shared with the baby unit during a pairing process carried out in the factory. That unit does not have the capacity, it says, to share the video with a parent unit other than the paired one. And it doesn't have the capacity to share that video more than 200 meters away. Any technology can have vulnerabilities, right? My guess, only a guess because I haven't been there, is they both somehow paired their devices maybe at the same time and they got confused because that can happen when technology is pairing up. The company is now sending a new monitor, but the family wants some assurances before they use it. I'm most concerned about the privacy and if we can see into their nursery, can they see into our nursery? Tomasio Da Silva, Global News.
More than 450 Canadian soldiers are in Newfoundland to help dig out from the blizzard that dumped 76 centimeters of snow. The province is into its fourth day of a state of emergency, and the only vehicles allowed on the roads are snow plows and emergency vehicles. Most stores are still closed, and people are being told to buy gas only if they need it for clearing snow. The military says its priority will be digging out people who can't get out of their homes. I'm stuck upstairs, yeah. You're stuck upstairs. Does anybody know that you're stuck injured? Upstairs? Yes. No. So we made sure that she didn't need any further medical attention and asked her if the only thing that she required was to uh, clear her doorway to make sure that she could leave if, or family members to come in and check on her. Well, we definitely didn't have it that bad last week. Well, then there's Lola Parsons, who lives in Conception Bay. She went out the morning after the storm to dig out her car only to discover she had a different problem on her hands. Update on Storm 2020. <laughs> While parking my car last night, I left down the passenger window and was wondering why there was no snow around my car. Well, it's because I left the window open and all the snow is in the car. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can't even get in the car, there's so much snow in the car. Oh my God. Parsons says at first she thought someone had broken into her car and it wasn't until she started taking pictures for an insurance claim that she realized what she'd done. Wow. That is incredible. All right, Mother Nature is adding insult to injury and fire ravaged Australia. Wind gusts of more than 100 kilometers an hour drove massive snow, uh, sandstorms in some areas, turning day into night. And much of the dust is topsoil from farms. Some areas have also been hit by golf ball-sized hail, punching holes in roofs, destroying cars, and knocking branches from trees. Millions of Americans and others around the world honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. today. Celebrate the King! In Washington, D.C., people gathered at the King Memorial. Speakers talked about King's human rights legacy, quoting from his most notable speeches and offering prayers. The federal holiday is celebrated on the third Monday in January. President Ronald Reagan made it official in 1983. In Health Matters tonight, Vancouver International Airport is adding some new signage to encourage passengers to report any illness that might be linked to China's coronavirus outbreak. The outbreak has killed three people and infected more than 200 so far. And now Chinese officials have confirmed it can spread from person to person. Tonight, the city of Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak, is racing to contain the potential spread of a deadly new strain of coronavirus. And now a disturbing development. China today says it has confirmed cases of human-to-human transmission of the mystery illness. In one case, a hospital patient is said to have infected 14 medical workers. Airline workers are already doing temperature checks on some flights leaving Wuhan, not allowing passengers to deplane without getting one. CBS News obtained this video showing health officials in Wuhan in full hazmat gear at a treatment facility investigating the virus. The World Health Organization says an animal is probably the source of this new virus, and this now-closed seafood market is probably ground zero. This is as close as police will let us get. Dr. Anthony Fauci from the National Institutes of Health says human-to-human transmission is a game-changer. 
when you get sustained transmissibility from one person to another, to another, to another, then you have a more serious problem because then that would allow for a much broader type of an outbreak. In the United States, the CDC has deployed about 100 workers to airports in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco to screen passengers arriving from infected regions. People here are getting ready to make what's known as the world's biggest annual migration, making nearly three billion trips to celebrate Chinese New Year. And while the risk of a U.S. outbreak is still low, the CDC says it's something they're watching very carefully. Ramey Innocencio, CBS News, Wuhan, China. Drivers encouraged to pause at the crosswalk by a four-legged crossing guard coming up right after the forecast. <laughs> oh, watch out if you don't stop. You'll see pause. what happens. Pause. I see what you did there. You see what I did? Uh -huh. I'm not proud, but I, I tried. <laughs> Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us with a look at our forecast, but we're, we're doing a little comparison, coast-to-coast -coast comparison, Christy. That's right. Everyone's talking about back east, but we had our own snow beginning here in B.C. I want to show you, though, quick the numbers uh, from St. John's, Newfoundland. So anywhere from 78 to 93 centimeters. That was in about a 36-hour period. A record in a 24-hour period was 76 uh, in St. John's. Uh, some incredible Incredible images coming from uh, that area. But here's a look at our own province, everyone. Terrace, B.C., today with 71 centimeters. Sorry, that's in a two-day period. Not a record, but still incredible. So close to those numbers that they had back east. This one from Kitimat. Uh, Karen sent this to me. She said there is a pickup under this pile. So they are also digging out their cars and their stairwell. She said this is my front steps, by the way. So an incredible amount of snow there as well. They've had windy conditions with gusts up to 50, 60 kilometers an hour. This one from Kitimat. Thank you to Heather for, for that. And this is her neighbor. She said for, as a comparison, her neighbor's son, uh, Austin, and he's six foot one, just so you understand how high the banks are there. Now, meanwhile, back at home, it is has been back to wet weather and we're going to see that for the next several days. No snow in the forecast here across the south coast. Mild wet conditions. So tomorrow morning the wave pushes on shore. It does mean snow for inland regions, mainly mainly the mountainous area. You can see a bit of a rain shadow effect for the central and southern interior regions. For our region tomorrow we're expecting rain but it will be on and off. Not consistent rain but I wouldn't leave home without your rain jacket and then we've got another wave for Wednesday. So it is going to be one thing after another. Across the north, just light snowfall. So for those of you in Terrace and Smith or uh, Kitimat, finally a break for you tomorrow, that's for sure. Bulk of the snowfall will be here, 2 to 5 for the Okanagan region, and then 5 to 10 for the Columbia and the Kootenai region. For our region, as I mentioned, periods of rain, but on and off throughout the day. Mild and will stay mild throughout the entire week with another wave expected later on Wednesday. And I'll leave you with this shot here from Kingsway and Edmonds uh, in Burnaby. Kevin Mountain has sent, this, sent me this from 1913 to 2020, a comparison for you. Quite a change on that corner, isn't it? Amazing. All right, thanks very much, Christy. Video of a stray dog in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia is spreading around the world. The dog, which the locals call Kersha, barked at cars to make sure a group of children crossed the street safely. He also expressed his displeasure with a driver who wasn't paying attention. Kersha walked all the way across the street with the kids until he was sure they were all okay. You really should be wearing a reflective vest, though. I'm <laughs> yeah.
lot of people, a lot of baseball fans pulling for one of the greatest Canadians ever to play the game. Well, and there's been a lot of lobbying, too, mm-hmm. by people from Canadian baseball, lobbying the people who vote on the Baseball Hall of Fame. And we should know at 3 o'clock tomorrow, our time, if Maple Ridge's Larry Walker gets voted into the Hall of Fame. He needs his name to be on at least 75% of the ballots put in by voters. Last year, I think he got just over 54%, so he obviously needs to jump way up this year. But the word is he could be close to doing that. It's his 10th and final year for induction, so he needs these extra votes now. If he gets them and he gets in, he'd be just a second Canadian, along with pitcher Ferguson Jenkins, to get in the Hall of Fame, but the first from BC to do it. He has a great resume, started as a Montreal Expo, then Colorado, St. Louis. Uh, He won an MVP award, won three batting titles, could play defense, won seven gold gloves. His career average was 313. But his detractors say he got a lot of good stats playing in the thinner air of Denver. But in recent years, a number of baseball statistical analysts say that knock is unfair and his stats are Hall of Fame worthy. All right, aside from the Canuck All-Stars, most of the Canucks will have this week off, and they deserve the break. Not only are they first in their division, they also have the most points of any of the seven Canadian teams right now. Uh, the Avalanche were playing, though, against the Detroit Red Wings. That's uh, Pavel Francois, or Francois makes that. And that's uh, Todd's nephew, Tyler of the Bertuzzi family, scoring to give Detroit a 1-0 lead. Kale McCarr, who's probably the biggest rival Quinn Hughes has right now for Rookie of the Year, gets an assist there on Nazem Kadri's goal. And then uh, Matt Nieto. Jost, Nieto, goal. Colorado wins it by the score of 6-3. The Vancouver Whitecaps started their training today for this coming season. Exhibition games actually aren't that far away. There will be one on January 28th. The uh, first regular season game is February 29th. They will probably add to this group of players they have before the season begins. But, of course, their biggest signing in the offseason is already here. Lucas Cavallini. Morning, morning, morning. Morning, morning, morning. morning. Fitting that Lucas Cavallini was the first member of the Whitecaps to take to the training pitch to open up the 2020 season, the Canadian striker Vancouver's big offseason signing and a player expected to carry the bulk of the Caps' goal-scoring workload offensively. He has the profile that I believe a number nine should have in what modern soccer is today. Um, He's very aggressive without the ball. His work rate is great. Um, He's a strong player. He tries to hold the ball. He could still grow in that area. He's very hungry in front of goal. I try and uh, help this team as as much as I can, you know, uh, being the striker, uh, scoring the goal. So obviously from the help of my teammates, uh, we're going to get the job done. Getting the job done is something we haven't seen the Caps collectively do. They went 8, 16 and 10 during a 2019 campaign that can only be described as dismal. One they don't want to talk about or relive again. You know, one of the first things that was addressed is was from Axel and that, you know, we, we don't want to look too much in, in the rearview mirror. We want to look through the windshield and, you know, 2019 was 2019, but this is 2020. It's a brand new year and everybody's looking forward. When you lose, obviously it's not fun. Now we've got to win. Uh, when there's a winning uh, vibe around the team, life is good. Look, I arrived last year knowing where I was going to. If I wasn't, I said it before, if I wanted the comfortable route, I would have stayed in L.A with smoking cigars and being sitting and 
there. I was good, great club, uh, comfortable. I came here knowing that this, the 2019 would be tough and rebuild and uncomfortable. I knew that. So what we see is a huge growth in the club. And maybe you guys don't see it now, but you'll eventually see it. There's things happening inside with, with Mark, with Axel, and all of these pieces are going to better the club. And um, that's my excitement. I, I, I see growth in the club. Milos Ronic has won his first round match at the Australian Open. Vancouver's Vosik Pospisil will play tonight. Yesterday, Denis Shapovalov was upset in the first round as a 13th seed. He was also upset at the umpire for giving him a code violation for slamming his racket in frustration at himself for messing up a shot. He basically channeled his uh, inner John McEnroe. It doesn't matter. It's my racket. I can do whatever the hell I want with it. What are you talking about? I didn't break it. If I break it, give me a code 100%. I didn't break my racket. Yeah, but it's a terrible call. Like, do your job. That's an absolute joke. All right, Norman Powell. No joking with him lately. Four straight 20-plus point games coming into this one against the Atlanta Hawks. And in the fourth, he just goes off. Three-pointer. And then the next bucket they get is a Powell three-pointer. And then the next bucket they get is a Powell three-pointer. I am not a broken record. I just showed you three three-pointers. Finished with 27 points and 17 in the fourth. Well, long time, Hastings Park's fixture, Tommy Walski died today of a heart attack. He uh, suffered while visiting in Florida. Walski was a former jockey. He was a big ambassador for horse racing, or as he would have said, horse racing, and especially Hastings Park. One of those guys who never seemed to be in a bad mood. Everyone around racing knew him. We think he was 79 years old. Tommy never liked to tell you his age, which was fine because he never seemed to age. Uh, he will be missed for sure. Mm-hmm. There you go. Thanks, Squire. Here's your snow report for this evening. Whistler Blackcomb picked up 13 centimeters of fresh snow. Grouse, nothing new, but good base at 260. Cypress, 11 centimeters. Sasquatch, a base of 205. Mounting Park, nothing new, but a nice base at 170. Revelstoke, 3 centimeters of new snow. Fernie, 5. Kicking Horse, 2. Big White also picked up 2. Silver Star and Sun Peaks, nothing new, but strong bases at 216 and 182. Apex, 1 centimeter of fresh snow. Same for Mount Washington. Whitewater, strong base at 268. Red Mountain, one centimeter fresh snow. And Powder King is the winner tonight at 25 centimeters. Coming up on ET Canada, we're backstage with all the winners at the SAG Awards, including Jennifer Aniston, plus a little Big Town exclusive and a Big Big Brother Canada announcement. That's coming up at 7 right after the news hour. Back to you, Chris and Sophie. All right. Thanks, Angita. It's quite the the sparkly outfit. (laughs) Okay, today marks the end of an era in Vancouver's hospitality industry. After more than 40 years in the business, the Four Seasons Hotel at Howe and Georgia shut its doors. And while another hotel brand is set to take its place, we sent our Catherine Urquhart to take one last trip down memory lane. At Vancouver's Four Seasons Hotel, the last supper, actually the last breakfast, After 44 years in this city, the final meal was served and the hotel was closed. How does it feel to be done after 42 years? Kind of strange and kind of sad. 
Yeah. A lot of memories. Yeah. Yeah. Since its opening in 1976, the 370-room Four Seasons has been a hot spot for celebrities. Don't block the door, please. Don't block the door, please. Power brokers and business leaders. There's no question about that. It was a significant place. If you were doing business, this was the place where you closed some of the biggest deals. A decision to close the hotel followed a 2017 lawsuit by property owner Cadillac Fairview, alleging the Four Seasons wasn't maintaining the property as a first-class luxury hotel. Everybody is uncertain what's going to happen later because not everybody has another job. Well, I'm planning to take off for three months and then maybe I can look for a job by May. A different hotel chain, still unannounced, is set to open eventually at the Pacific Centre location. And Four Seasons says it hopes to return to Vancouver. But for employees working their last shift, this piece of Vancouver history is irreplaceable. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Squire brought out his Four Seasons pen. Well, when I had breakfast breakfast there one day, they, they have these nice little pens. It's like, I like that pen. Did you just take it? No, they gave it to me. But I would never take it. I asked and they gave it to me. He is Squire. Without their bosses knowing. <laughs> Thanks for watching, everybody. Good night.